Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast dedicated to the very best in productivity and professional development in the nonprofit sector. I'm Patton McDowell, and I'm excited to share this conversation I had with Don Jonas. He's the executive director of an organization called Caring, based here in Charlotte. It's a human services nonprofit which empowers individuals with limited resources to establish and maintain good health. You'll enjoy this conversation as Don shares multiple resources that helped him along his nonprofit leadership journey, as well as some of the creative aspects he's brought to his leadership as CareRing's executive director, including the development of a podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and of course, know that we've got all of the tips and books and ideas Don and I discuss in the associated episode show notes. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Don Jonas. Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, Don. Delighted to have you on this uh, episode. So great to be with you, Patton. Don, I have followed your career. It is impressive. Uh, you are exactly the kind of person that this podcast uh, is interested in, in speaking with. You've had a great journey, a lot of lessons learned, and I'm looking forward to talking about, uh, I guess, uh, the maybe three phases of your career, when you got started and why, how you moved up the ladder, so to speak, and then how you're applying those lessons to your current leadership and including some of the cool things you're doing through caring in terms of telling the story of your nonprofit. But first question, Don, why did you join the path? of nonprofit work. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. I appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I, I Likewise, I'm a fan of you and your career and the work that you're doing to support the nonprofit sector uh, really across the country. I, I know most of your work in the Carolinas, but I know you're influential in spaces and places far beyond here. So, you know, I didn't make a conscientious decision that I would get into the nonprofit field um, I'm thinking back to really after college, you know, I, I was planning on becoming a professor. So I had finished at University of North Carolina, and then I got a master's in political science at Appalachian State up in Boone, and then went on to uh, University of Kentucky, where I got a PhD in political science. You know, I, I was planning on a, you know, life of the mind. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, Academics, right? for sure. Yeah, right? I, I envisioned a little coffee maker in a, a little you know, faculty lounge on a small bucolic liberal arts campus, you know, teaching <laughs> um, 20 kids in classes about American political science issues. And uh, my career sort of took a, a, a turn. I, this was my, uh, I was writing my dissertation and my wife and I thought it'd be a good idea just to see what the job market might be like out there. And at the time I was doing a lot of work on state level uh, digital technologies and how they were impacting criminal justice and education and healthcare and many other things. And there was a think tank, Hudson Institute, that was based in Indianapolis at the time, and they needed a researcher to help them uh, work on a book on state-level digital technologies. This is something I had spent the previous three years in the UK library working on this stuff, and I thought, boy, this would be a nice fit. I'll finish my dissertation you know, later. Um, and so I got the job and I was a research fellow at, at Hudson doing um, work on that book. And that through that work on that book and being at Hudson, I became um, sort of more interested in human capital work 
Uh, Hudson had a small office in Madison, Wisconsin. They were doing a lot of really innovative welfare reform work at that time around right. getting, um, previously incarcerated folks into the workforce and uh, child supports for and transportation supports for uh, folks coming into the workforce. So I helped out on a book on Workforce 2020. Um, so I, at this point, I had kind of realized that there was something beyond academia. There was something about uh, being involved in communities and being involved in helping to create stronger, more vital communities and to help people, particularly people that um, for a variety of different reasons didn't have uh, the same access to thrive that a lot of other folks in our society do. Absolutely. So all that to say, I sort of, you know, I didn't intentionally think, you know, I can't wait until 30 years from now, I'm going to be, you know, a seasoned nonprofit executive. I was really more interested in how do I make a difference? How do I, how do I um, contribute to the, to society uh, beyond, um, you know, some of the financial rewards of being a professor or being a, um, a, a, a research fellow to think tank, how can I utilize my talents, my skills to make a difference in people's lives? And through the think tank and the work I did there, it was mostly around um, writing and thinking and speaking on um, workforce issues and welfare issues. And um, it was interesting at the time, there was a senior fellow and he came into my office one day and he said, you won't believe this. We have a, a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, you know, one of the premier healthcare funding uh, organizations in the country. He said, they, Robert Wood Johnson got word of your, uh, of, the, of the work we've been doing around Workforce 2020, and they want us to do a similar book on Healthcare 2020. He wow. said, would you, like to help, would you like to help me write the book? And I, I told him then, which was true, I said, I don't know anything about healthcare. And he said, I don't either, but they're, <laughs> they're, they're giving us some funds and some time and some resources to spend the next year um, looking at the American healthcare system. And coming up with some ideas and thoughts and and guidance for um, communities and cities and states around what healthcare might look like in the year 2020. And I, I say that just because it's sort of a, 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 when I think about the path of how I got to where I am now, you know, it's, it's, it's being open to changes. It's being open and willing to take risks. You know, I could have very easily told that senior fellow, no, I really don't know anything about healthcare, and I, I've you know, been working on digital technologies for a while. I think I'll just stay in my place. But instead, I, I did take that year and wrote that book and was able to do some speaking around the country and got really interested in, in healthcare. Uh, that book was mostly around the financing of healthcare into the future, but I got more and more interested in how healthcare impacts people's lives, particularly people um, that are maybe living in the shadows or otherwise are not accessing healthcare. Uh, like we think we all should, at least I think we all should. So that's kind of, it's interesting that those sort of decisions early on in my professional career, you know, thinking back, it wasn't a clear path. It was very much a winding path to get me to where I am now. It wasn't that I had projected out that, you know, I'll make this decision and then the next one will come and will ultimately lead to me being at caring. It, it really was much, much more uh, disjointed than that. Well, but I'm glad you share that because I think a lot of people who are concerned that they have a passion and an interest, as you described, and worry that they don't have such a clear path, and, and your advice is a good one, that you can build on the skills and, and experiences you've had early. And I use the phrase a lot of times, a lateral entry into nonprofit. I think few of us actually decided in college to go into nonprofit, perhaps increasingly more so today. But in our generation, uh, I guess, Don, um, you built on, though, an academic through line, it seems, that you've carried to this day. 
So maybe you didn't abandon your your early interest in being a college professor. You just turned it to a, a new direction, right? And have applied it ever since. That's right. And I've also, you know, over the last few years, I've I've picked up adjunct teaching uh, positions. So I teach at UNC Charlotte in their health systems management uh, department. Uh, there's a capstone course for the seniors. So I'm helping to pro- help those folks reflect on the work they've done the first four years and get them ready for the workforce. And I'm fantastic. I'm on the Blair College of Health at Queens, and I teach a sort of an introduction to healthcare systems class for Queens. So I've, I'm able to to do the work, and I think in many ways, sort of the life-changing work that caring does where we directly care for people during the day. And then in the evenings, a couple of nights a week, I get to uh, go back to sort of the back of the future where I was before and sort of thinking theoretically and intellectually about healthcare and about larger policies and how they're impacting our society. Well, that's fantastic. In fact, it, it's a good segue as I consider your busy schedule of both managing as a CEO of a nonprofit and then teaching in multiple settings. Uh, Don, a question I've asked all my guests uh, uh, with the kind of premise that in the nonprofit world, in any professional setting, your ability to organize a high and increasing volume of data and content and activity, I think, is critical. Uh, so productivity is a personal interest in one of this podcast in terms of a theme. So having said all that, how do you stay organized, Don? you got stuff coming at you from every direction. Are there certain keys or tips you would offer someone to, to stay organized? That's an excellent question, Patton, and something I, I struggle with. I, I, I in no way consider myself um, a finished product and, and knowing how best to to, to stay organized and to be as productive as possible. I mean, a few sort of general things that work for me, you know, I, every night, you know, t- definitely starting on Sunday, sometimes not on Friday or Saturday night, but every night before a work day, I look at my day and I look at the next day and the various events and meetings and, and projects that I'm working on. And I just kind of, I, I look through the whole day. I don't start to prioritize at that point, but I do right. start to get my mindset for where my energy and my focus is going to be the next day. First thing in the morning, right when I get up and I'm having my first cup of coffee, I look at that again. I don't yet prioritize, but I do want to, I've given my brain the night to sort of think through what's getting ready to happen. And then I look at it again. And I've really, I've gotten into a habit, I guess maybe for the last year or so now, that really the very first thing I do when I get into the office, the right after I turn on the computer, is then I start to prioritize the day. I know there are certain meetings that are going to happen at certain times, but there's an awful lot of things that are happening within the agency and out in the community that are going to require my attention. And I I really try to make as thoughtful as I can a priority of what are those things that are really going to require my attention that day. Right. I I found that has been very helpful to me. I sometimes, if I just look at my day and I haven't really thoughtfully prioritized it, I will sort of dive into things that maybe aren't the, the, the greatest use of my time at that day. There's something that, that could be accomplished a week or two later. You know, a few other things. One thing that I've really just picked up in the last um, few months is some of the uh, the mindfulness training that's out there about how to, to, to live within this swirl and chaos of a digital world and all the the, the requests and time demands that you'll see. I've started to breathe. I'm doing some breathing exercises now. Yeah. I mean, Something as simple, something as simple as you know, you want your when you're starting to feel stressed out about the day and the things you're doing, you want the the out breath to be longer than the in breath. You know, kind of simply 
pause for a moment and and do that breathing exercise. And it's remarkable, at least for me, how you almost literally will feel some of the stress and the tension uh, melt away. When you just take a moment, really it only takes a couple minutes during the day. I find myself doing that breathing exercise really multiple times a day just because it sort of gets me in a good, peaceful, sort of in, induces some momentary relaxation when there's chaos. So it's and not think, it's not a set time. It's it's just an on-demand kind of effort that helps that's you. That's right. Yeah, it's like the, you know, it's the force. You can sort of tap into that whenever you kind of <laughs> right. need it. If you need right. a moment to sort of regroup, it's it's right there waiting for you if you can if you have a good breathing uh, exercise. The other thing that I do try to do that's been helpful for me is to protect time on my calendar to think or read or to write or to otherwise not allow some of the external um, challenges, the day-to-day challenges that will come in that will interrupt interrupt my ability to, to get things done. And so sometimes I will, almost always, if I don't have a lunch meeting that's scheduled and it's not pouring down rain outside, I will go for a walk. Excellent. And I, will just, I will just clear my head for that 30 or 45 minute period that I've found incredibly beneficial. I have maybe going back to my academic career and my interest in in writing and, and, and speaking on a variety of public policies, I really find it important to protect time just to think and sometimes just to read. And it's not always just reading within the field where caring makes a difference, but more broadly, being aware of larger public policies and other things that are happening in our world that could ultimately impact the work that we do. I found it incredibly important to protect that time. I, I've tried to protect Fridays as much as I can right. for that kind of work. I increasingly, you know, th- those days when my assistant looks at the calendar and, oh, Don, Friday's the one that's still open, I end up, you know, scheduling some things then. But I, I really try to be diligent to protect a few hours each week and ideally on Friday really just to, to, to think and to, to read. And, and if I have some things I want to get off my chest to do some writing. Great examples, and I'd recap because I think they're so important. In fact, I've got an episode coming up on what I would call rituals that I think productive nonprofit professionals should, could and should consider. Um, you know, I, Michael Hyatt of the Lead to Win podcast, one of my favorites, suggests having rituals like you just described on the kind of the night before ritual of just gathering your thoughts. It sounds like you then have a what I'd call a wake up ritual. And then even maybe more importantly is once I get to work, uh, because I think a lot of nonprofit yep. professionals just get caught up in the flurry yes. and never do is another great piece of advice, have time to think. And I remember in my days of higher education, it, it seemed like I was in meeting after meeting after meeting, never allowing time, as you suggest, to read. And so I, I just think that is fantastic advice. And while you were modest about your organizational skills uh, as you started, uh, I'd say clearly you have some good routines that are that are paying off for you. I appreciate it. Well, let's go back to the early days, Don, in your leadership journey. Um, you know, as you recall getting into the nonprofit space, were there early bits of advice you received that helped you move to ultimately senior leadership? Um, as again, you described coming in from kind of an academic mindset, you got into nonprofit, you liked it. What were some of those early learnings and advice perhaps that you would share? Yeah. So I, when I came back to Charlotte, I was, um, brought in as the senior vice president for community philanthropy at foundation for the Carolinas, which was a, 
a wonderful fit in many ways for me. You know, I as I said earlier, I had a real interest in sort of community building and sort of broadly helping people, um, vulnerable populations to succeed. And and the foundation was looking for someone that had my kind of experience, had worked with philanthropic organizations, um, had an understanding of the greater Charlotte community, you know, had an idea about how to build networks of, of people and organizations together to do something greater than the sum of its parts. And so that was a great fit for me to be there at that time. It was it was interesting to learn from the foundation perspective, you know, how um, on sitting on that side of the table where you're kind of surveying the full landscape and then trying to make your very best bets about where to invest dollars to make a difference in the community. I think one of the things I learned early on is that as as smart as I thought I was, I, you know, I really didn't fully appreciate uh, the complexity of the nonprofit space. Interesting. I didn't, I didn't fully appreciate how nonprofits function, the role of the board, the critical role of leadership within nonprofits, um, just how important it is that organizations have clear missions. I think there were times early on in my career at Foundation of the Carolinas that I may have um, advanced some proposals, advanced some funding for organizations uh, that maybe if I was a little bit more seasoned, I would have had a chance to ask some additional questions and learned a little bit more about nonprofits that maybe weren't in a place uh, where it was ready for the kind of the philanthropic capital that we could help to bring their way. What would you look for? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I'm curious. Yeah, in retrospect, and of course now you seek funding uh, for caring, obviously, and so you know some of the questions being asked, but were, were, were there leadership components that you, in retrospect, would now look back at some nonprofits and see, hey, I would want to see more evidence of that, or, or what might be an example? Yeah, I mean, example, I think who does one uh, funder now, I think does a really good job on this that I, I would emulate if I went back to the other side of the table is uh, the Leon Veen Foundation. I mean, they, right. are, they are very, it's a, one of the highest um, priorities for them when they evaluate grant seekers is to look at the, both the, 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 the executive director and the senior leadership of the team, but also the, the engagement of the senior volunteers that are on the board. Right. They want to see that there is a clear succession plan that's in place for the executive director. It was interesting for me when I came to Caring, really the first few years, there was no formal succession plan. And it was actually through a grant process with Levine Foundation that really got us triggered to say, you know, we should really have that in place. We need to be very clear if for whatever reason I, w I was not here or some of the senior leadership team was not here, we need to be able to quickly activate a plan so that leaders are still you know, able to step in and perform the the roles of the organization. Great and I think point. similarly, Levine does a great job of making sure that the volunteers that are serving on the board are not just rubber stamping the um, the ideas of the senior staff, that they are engaged, they understand the mission, they um, they want to see that uh, the senior leaders of the executive, executive committee of the board knows what the strategic plan is for the organization and supports it and has a way to evaluate if they're making success on that. You know, all those sorts of things, really from a leadership capacity, both from staff and board, you know, I really wasn't thinking that way at Foundation of the Carolinas. I was sort of looking at the mission of the organization that would have applied and thought, well, that would really fit in with where we're going to go. And I, I, I hadn't taken the time to really think through some of those critical organizational you know, governance uh, sort of questions that I think are really critical for nonprofits to be successful. 
That's a great point. And clearly you learn through experience there. And I'm guessing, in, in fact, that would lead to my next question of someone who's on the nonprofit ladder, so to speak, seeking senior leadership. It sounds to me like board development and board relations was a critical learning for you, or is that how you would advise someone who's thinking about moving into senior nonprofit leadership? Or are there other elements you would particularly emphasize? I think that that would probably be the first thing I would say is recognizing just how important the board and the board relationships are for the success of the nonprofit. Um, as you know, uh, folks that are on nonprofit boards come in for a short amount of time. They oftentimes have um, ex excellent skills that whether they're financial acumen or they may have maybe a good relationship builder out in the community, uh, but they really don't have, no one has the time to fully understand and appreciate the internal operations of a nonprofit other than the staff that's there each day. And it's, I realized fairly early on that it's really important that I communicate as much as possible with the senior um, leadership of my executive committee. I know that I've got to start building a pipeline of senior, of, of new leadership that's going to be on the board because these folks are cycling out of their leadership positions every couple of years. And you've got, you know, people on boards are very busy. They've got lots of other things happening within their life. And I've got to find that balance. It's something I, I honestly am still seeking. I'm into the eighth year at, at Caring now. How do I get that balance between giving the board as much information as they need to help us make good strategic decisions for the agency versus how do I avoid overwhelming them with the minutia of right. what we are and what we're doing and, and, and how we're advancing on our mission. It's a, I think that will be a, an eternal job. I think I'm going to always be trying to work, always be working towards trying to find that sweet spot. And it changes depending on who the leader is and what their expectations or their needs are or their background or their awareness of what the, the nonprofit is. You're always trying to find that, again, that sweet spot between not giving them too much information, but making sure that they have the, the most important information and tools they need to help make the kind of decisions that a board needs to make. Well, you, you, you nailed it. I'm guessing as much as you'd like to have a system in place over your eight years, it, it has to, I guess, adjust according to whoever is in board leadership roles, right? You have to adapt. That's right. I think one of the best things that we did was uh, we were part of a, we had a grant from the Blue Cross Blue Shield Foundation. Um, a, it was like a nine month training program around, and we were able to select whatever sort of issue was important for our organization. And what we chose to look at was um, our internal operational structure for how we engaged our board members. This was probably the, nearing the end of my first year that I was here. Right. And we had, when I came to Caring, there were, this, I'm embarrassed to even admit this, I think there were 10 or 11 different committees of the board that were operating at that time. I mean, wow. There was, there was a board, and then there was a fundraising committee, and there was a finance committee, and there was a couple of ad hoc committees, and there was a marketing committee, and it was just, I, I could barely keep track of what the committee's structure was, and I can only imagine the board members themselves must have been overwhelmed with what was happening. Right. And, and through this training, we, we elected to take the approach of just having uh, streamlined it as, as much as possible to where we now just have an internal committee that's looking at internal operations and program outcomes and an external committee that's looking out to our partnerships. It's looking out to how we market who we are. It's looking to memorandums of understanding that we create. 
I think it, I know internally it's made it much easier for us as staff, you know, supporting those two committees to have clarity on what we're trying to achieve with those committees. And I think it's, and I've, I've gotten some good feedback from the board as well, that it's helped them as well to recognize, you know, sort of how do we want to best utilize their talents? How do we do it most efficiently? How do we do it so that we don't overwhelm them with requests to support us with the work we're doing? I love the clarity of that, and, and it just seems to me that would help someone, particularly a new board member, quickly get oriented. Now, let me ask you, though, functionally, uh, do, you, do you still have, obviously, uh, finance nominating other governance-related subcommittees, or how does that incorporate into your kind of two-pronged committee approach? Yeah, so what we've done is we have the uh, most of the financial work and the evaluation of our financial performance each month occurs within the internal committee. Gotcha. Um, I'll tell you truthfully, that's an area where we need to do some additional work on because what's occurred over time is that a lot of times the internal committee will focus almost exclusively on just the financial um, outputs, kind of where right. we were over the last month, where, where there's an awful lot of very interesting and important conversations around program activity that's happening. Uh, we've tried really this past year to um, kind of overemphasize the program activity and the area where we need their conversation and their guidance and their thoughts on the program work. But we continue to have that financial discussion within that internal committee. We do still have an executive committee that is they meet as needed um, to look at uh, overall board governance issues. So recruiting new members or if folks for various reasons need to step away for a little bit, we can have those conversations with the executive committee. Gotcha. Well, last question on the board structure. Obviously, fundraising, I know you want your entire board engaged there. Does the external committee, so to speak, lead that as an external function, or is is the development or fundraising component uh, oriented in a different way? Yep. So the, the development committee, uh, the external committee uh, oversees all those functions as well. In fact, my chief development officer is the lead staff for the external committee. And so they're looking you know, every month that they're getting together as they're talking about the strategic plan to try to raise more funding, hire staff to help with major gifts, help they do some work around planning for some of our events that we're doing. So yes, all that activity is occurring in that external committee. It's fantastic. Uh, again, uh, love the way you've kind of considered your board model, adapted it, it sounds like, very successfully over your eight-year tenure. Uh, let me shift gears to the staffing side as you wear your hiring hat. Uh, again, many of our listeners are pondering nonprofit. They're early in nonprofit. You know, they may want a job with an organization like yours, Don. So maybe I'll pose the question this way. What are you seeing in candidates in general that are coming into the field? Or maybe what are you not seeing? Are there certain kind of elements that you use to evaluate talent as you consider building your team? Yeah, it's an excellent question, Pat. And so um, there's a lot of interest in the work that we're doing. I think um, we have, uh, over the eight years I've been here, we've grown and uh, we're continuing to expand our work. And so we're adding nurses, we're adding support staff. We've um, very recently, in the last couple of years, have gone from really no um, case management uh, team members to now we have four, soon to be five full-time case managers. So there's a lot wow. of interest in our work. Right. I, you know, I, I, what we're looking for when people that come to us, I, I think the number one criterion is to have a passion for a mission, is to have a, a, a deep uh, sense of wanting to to move the ball forward on, on our mission to help 
you know, empower people with limited resources to establish good health. But it's got to be more than just the passion. We oftentimes hear people that can tell and can share amazing stories about um, how they've gotten involved with their, their house of worship or through their school around um, issues closely related to the work of caring. But we really, what helps us, helps me, is to see people that they've demonstrated that in a, in a longer term capacity, either as a volunteer for a six to 12 month period, or ideally actually doing the work as a full-time employee at a peer nonprofit so that we, we not only hear them and can, can feel the authenticity oftentimes of how much they believe in the passion of the work that we're doing, but it really helps to have people that have actually devoted their lives, that have really spent time intensely in this kind of environment. Because as you know well, this is, this is a very unique sort of organizational structure in a nonprofit. Absolutely. It's very, very different from simply looking at a profit and loss ratios and, and simply trying to grow market share. I mean, this is, this is work of, you know, honestly trying to, to do our job to change people's lives, to, to um, give people hope that haven't had in the past. And it, it requires people that are really you know, deeply committed to this kind of work, but again, can also demonstrate that they've really done this kind of work in their careers. So even I come to you as a, a classic, uh, lateral entry. I've been in for-profit. I'm burned out by for-profit. I just know I can help you at Caring. Um, you you want to see evidence, though, of me doing more than just having a passion for your cause. Uh, I need to volunteer. I need to do other things like that to demonstrate I get working at a nonprofit. Yes. I would love to have a, a lateral career person that came to me that you know had has had success in the private sector, but could also share that they've spent the last year you know, uh, volunteering at Christ Assistance Ministry, or they right. have right. served on the board at um, uh, Council for Children's Rights, or they, you know, something that they've, they've really, they not only have the passion, and I can see that the skills that they have probably could be transferred to us. I, I want to have a better sense that they really understand how a nonprofit works and the, the nature of the work that we do and how what we do is, uh, while it is a business and it's a nonprofit business, uh, there's a different culture within nonprofits, and there's a different way that we do our work. And I think it's it's hard to kind of learn that on the job. It, it, it was very helpful for me as a hiring manager, as a director of this agency, to see that people have actually gotten their hands dirty and been in the trenches and have done this kind of work. Because with limited staffing, you, you can't afford to take chances, can you, with someone who may be well-intentioned, but you need to be more uh, certain of their potential for success. That's absolutely right. Well, let me uh, bump you to a, another topic that I've been excited to share with you and excited for your podcast uh, as a, an organization and an individual leading it. L let me first ask, give us your elevator speech, Dom. What is Caring? Caring is uh, an agency that helps individuals with limited resources establish and maintain good health. Um, we have been doing this for more than six decades. Uh, I've been told we're one of the oldest and maybe the, one of the largest uh, nonprofits serving people with limited resources in the Carolinas. Um, we do it in a variety of ways. So we have a clinic that's in Uptown Charlotte that's open to anyone. We do a lot of chronic disease management there. Uh, most of the people that come to us have multiple chronic diseases. They haven't seen a provider in more than a year. Right. Uh, they speak English as a second language. Uh, and they're very low income. Most people are below 100% of the federal poverty level. 
We also coordinate care on behalf of the medical community in Charlotte. So we've got about half of the physicians in town, 1,600, that volunteer with us to provide both primary and specialty care to people without public or private insurance. It's really the only access point for someone in Mecklenburg County that has a specialty care need but doesn't have insurance. Uh, it's about the only way to get care in our community, affordable care, other than foregoing care or showing up very sick at the emergency room. Um, and then we have a home visiting program called Nurse Family Partnership. This is a national program. It's an um, evidence-based program. We have nurses on our team that go into the homes of low-income moms that are pregnant, usually for the first time, and we attach a nurse to that family uh, when the mom is up to 28 weeks gestation with her baby. And then that nurse will stay with that mom through the birth of the child and until the little one is two years old. They'll make over 60 visits to their home. And it's a, as long as we maintain fidelity of the model and we do the intervention and the dosage along the way, the, the outcomes are pretty extraordinary. I mean, the, the, the little ones are much more likely to be born full term. Mom is much more likely to, to finish school or to finish her GRE or to get into the GED or to get into the workforce. And the little one, because of that really intensive intervention in those first two years, we now know from it's a, it's been studied for decades now. We now know that you know, 15 years later, that child is more likely to finish high school. Child is more likely to get into the workforce, uh, less likely to be incarcerated. So it's really a sort of a poverty fighting program that shows up in the guise of a of a loving and, and bright and very kind nurse. <clears throat> so that's our Fantastic. major programming work. And right. as I alluded to earlier, we now also are getting into sort of case management which is far beyond just the clinical interventions. So we've started to look at these social determinants of health, you know, all these things that go far beyond the clinical care that we provide. Uh, we now have um, loaves and fishes. We have a, a emergency food um, bin that's available within the Children and Family Services Center that so clients that come to us. Interestingly, the clients in our in our clinic that come to us, you know, they come to us for medical care and we ask them, you know, what are your greatest needs? And the greatest need is usually access to food. Uh, so to address that, we actually literally put a food pantry right here, you know, steps away from the clinic. Nice but these innovation. case managers, right. yeah, they can they can connect people to housing supports through Community Link and crisis assistance and many others, and and all the other needs that we know go into to helping someone that's in poverty, you know, get out of it. It's fascinating, uh, critical community need services you're providing. I'm struck by this, and let me offer this observation, and, and you're probably, like many human services organizations, not only around the country, around the world, I bet most people don't fully understand what you do, to be blunt. And yep. so is that is that a challenge on which you've kind of based your marketing communication strategies, including a podcast to better tell the story, or, or tell me of kind of the origins of how does a multi-service nonprofit like yours tell its story? Excellent question, Patton. So we have found that uh, out in the community, people know us by our individual programs, but they oftentimes don't know us by the umbrella of caring. Exactly. So, so physicians and providers uh, will oftentimes, when I see them at Rotary Clubs or other places, they'll say, oh yeah, I volunteer through Physicians Reach Out. Or um, they'll say, you know, I, I'm, I love that home visiting program, Nurse Family Partnership. Right. And one of the things that we went through, we did a strategic planning effort last year. We concluded just um, six months ago. And one of the things that we recognized as we did that is that we saw there was value in all the programs that we're doing. So we want to maintain the clinic. We think there's a need for a 
a place in uptown Charlotte for people without insurance to go. We we see there's support from the medical community to continue to come together to volunteer to provide care. In fact, last year we had our I mean best year ever in terms of donated services, over forty million dollars worth of donated care in one year. Wow. It was extraordinary from the physician community. And nurse family partnership is this is you know two generation. It helps mom and the baby. It's it's right in alignment with the leading on opportunity work. There's a lot of opportunity to grow that. But what we recognize through that process is that we caring is kind of bigger than just the programs. We're more than just what we do to touch the lives of seven or eight thousand people. That we have connections with the medical community, with the philanthropic community, with our fellow peer uh, healthcare provider organizations that maybe we should like kind of lean into and embrace more of a broader advocacy role. We should, and, and this is partly something that really was, I mean, it was, it was right, it was the right time for the agency and, and for a podcast like this, it was really the right time for me as well. I had reached a point where, you know, I was, I was um, so happy to come into work. I was energized and I still am literally every day knowing that over the course of the year, thousands of people are helped because of my team and the work that we do. And yet that's really just seven or 8,000 people in a community with you know, more than 100,000 people that are foregoing care because they can't afford it. Right. Um, the need is so big and our system of care is, is really dysfunctional in countless ways. That led our board and then ultimately through our strategic plan for us to embrace sort of a fourth pillar, which is for us to be a, a, a larger advocate for a better system of care. How can we envision and then hopefully design a better system of care so that everyone across Mecklenburg County can get access to care through the federally qualified health centers, through the new One Charlotte initiative that Atrium and Novant have together, through the faith-based clinics. I mean, honestly, today, if a person showed up at the Matthews Free Clinic, um, they, they may be a wonderful place for them to go if they have very basic primary care need. But they might actually need to either come to us or maybe to a federally qualified health center. And we don't have a system in place to talk with each other to best coordinate getting that person to where care would be best uh, provided. And so in, in, in embracing this sort of fourth larger advocacy role, we decided to really push and push hard and to and put a lot of my emphasis and my time around creating this, this new vision. And so we've branded it, you know, seeking the heart. And so we have our subtitle of caring is that we're the heart of community health. And so the seeking the heart is a is a, a multimedia, if you will, sort of package of me uh, blogging. So I, I do enjoy writing and I, I used to do yeah, a blog when I first absolutely. got here. So now I'm blogging on a try to do it weekly basis, but as often as I can about conversations that I'm having with people in the community about what their vision is for a better system of care and it's looking at at interventions, whether it's other home visiting programs like Nurse Family Partnership that are getting equally good results. But then also, this is part of, um, I would recommend to other folks that get into this role, be willing to take a risk. So I've become a podcast listener. And so I thought, let's try a podcast. Let's also, while I'm out in the community, having these conversations with 60, 70, 80, upwards of 100, 100 people over the next year about their vision for a better system of care, Let's, I should record some of these conversations. I should talk with you know, Laura Clark at the United Way or other folks that are in leadership positions at the hospital systems. Um, and so that's been a really fun exercise for me. You know, I've, I've learned the new technology of podcasting. I've, I've learned how to try to create what we hope is a, 
is a thoughtful kind of design for how we try to tease out ideas and thoughts from individuals. And I think all of that, going back to your original question, is how do we put caring and caring's message and sort of who we are out into the public space? How do we get donors? How do we get other stakeholders to see caring not only as a provider of these services within these programs, but really as a leader, as a thought leader, as a as a quarterback trying to help to design a better system of care for all. Um, it's a work in progress and it, the, the initiative itself is a bit of a risk. I mean, we may not be successful. We may not be able to sure. knit together a, a, a new vision and, and the podcast you know, may or may not continue. Initial feedback has been very positive. And so I think this is the kind of thing that's gonna help to put caring and our brand of sort of who we are it's going to get us more currency in the community and, and, and hopefully will also ultimately lead to more donations so that we can grow our, our impact. It's fantastic. And I'm certainly going to lift it up in the show notes of this episode because I think every executive director ought to consider how they can be more proactive. And, and in your case, lifting up your expertise, which in turn benefits caring and, and finding ways to get your message out there. I think most nonprofits are are generally more passive in this regard. Uh, they they lament that they are the best kept secret in their space, mm-hmm. but they're just waiting for people to come to their website and figure them out. And it sounds like you were intentional through a planning process to say, hey, why don't we get out there and, and not only help our organization, but help really the whole array of services that you're part of in supporting people that are dealing with poverty. You're absolutely right. And I think you know, part of it, and I we couldn't function without our hospital partners. Let me preface this. I, 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 I adore and love and support Novant and Atrium and Ortho Carolina and all those groups. I think part of the lesson we had from last year was that we will always be in alliance with them. We will always be working with them. But there, there are times when the work that we do requires us to be much more aggressive in pushing our message out and connecting more broadly out into the community. We were the one Charlotte initiative I mentioned is fantastic. You know, it is looking at the six zip codes in Mecklenburg County that have the highest poverty rates and there's new mobile clinics and and physical access clinics and a real focus on food insecurity in those zip codes. Um, And there's some connection points for caring and there's some connection points for the federally qualified health centers and there's some connection points for the faith based clinics. But there's really a bigger, broader need beyond just those six zip codes. And I think one of the lessons, again, from last year was that if we kind of just sit back and wait for the larger players in our market to, to figure out what they're going to do, we will always be in a reaction mode. We'll always be just kind of filling in where things didn't occur. So we decided, let's be much more aggressive. Let's really push and let's advocate and let's, let's see if we can work in concert and, and collaboratively with the hospital's partners, but all the other providers in the space to think a lot bigger. And I do think doing this kind of work, it does align well with my background and my interests and the work that I have. I know that I can't succeed day to day operationally without an extraordinarily talented team. My my strengths are not in operations. Right. But I do have some strengths in strategic thinking and in um, distilling um, complex ideas down to ways that we can have clear decisions to try to improve our community. So I think this this new strategy of us being this sort of advocate and, and champion for a better system of care really aligns closely with some of my skills. It's uh, fantastic advice. And I, again, would encourage every listener to consider the good advice you've offered both for them individually, 
as your journey, I think, represents so many good ideas and, and uh, advice, but also organizationally to be proactive, consider strategically what you're trying to do, what position you play in the larger community and get to get out and tell the story. Yes. And so yeah. I, I want to absolutely lift up um, before I ask your kind of final advice of any reading or resources, um, I take it we can send folks to check out. I mean, I think you're a great case study, Don, and caring. Uh, your website, is there anything else you would point people to to learn more about the good work you're doing? I appreciate that, Pat. And yeah, the website's caringnc.com. And if you go there, you'll see the tab for Seeking the Heart. And there you'll see uh, a link to the blog as well as a link to the podcast. Um, so you get a lot more information about why we're doing this work. And, and you'll be able to quickly uh, link to some of the blogs in the podcast. It's fantastic. Uh, and I I will, again, uh, replicate that in the show notes so it's easy to find. And uh, why don't you send us home, Don, with uh, your best uh, reading recommendation? Anything anything you're reading or would recommend that for someone who's on this uh, nonprofit path? Yeah, you know, I, I had the advantage of looking through some of the books that you have on your website, which are awesome. I think you've done a great job of collecting some of the best thoughts that are out there. I, I love the Simon Sinek Start With Why yeah. Um, in fact, I've got one of my blog posts I did six or seven months ago now was a, using that as a jumping off point about how we um, prioritize caring and why we need to go to that core of why we're doing the work that we do. Um, I, you know, throughout my career over the last number of years, I, I find myself periodically going back to the old um, Andrew Grove from Intel, the only the paranoid survive. Oh, wow. Good. With that, you know, that was Grove looking at the semiconductor industry and talking about how it was doubling in power every 18 months. And so organizations have to constantly be adapting and, and rethinking. And I, I think there's some level of that paranoia that's important in a nonprofit uh, setting that you don't get stayed, you don't get too complacent in what you're doing, and you keep getting those outcomes that if you're not peering out over the horizon to think about who are your uh, potential collaborators, what are some competitive pressures on the work that you're doing? Um, I've just found that as a good sort of touchstone really throughout my career to to keep me motivated uh, within our work. And then I had two other ones. Um, I don't know if it was ever a book, but it was something I've been a, a fan and admirer of um, Dean Smith and Carolina basketball since I was a little kid. You know, I was yep. foolish enough as a kid growing up in Carolina, watching Phil Ford as the point guard, thinking that one day I would be the point guard for Dean Smith. Um, Absolutely. When I, when I stopped growing at 5'8 and didn't get nearly as athletic as people on the, in the neighborhood, I, I think I finally realized that that probably wasn't going to happen. But I've, I've really admired Dean Smith's life and the kind of man he is and the, the way that he um, organized his team. That the, the, the mantra that they still use to this day that the new head coach Roy Williams has is the you know, play hard, play smart, play together. And there's there's something simple and yet profound about that, about always getting your team to play as hard as they can, to do it as as, as thoughtfully and as, as smart as you possibly can. But you always do it and you close with doing it together. You know, it's it's one thing to play hard and play smart, but if you're not playing it as a team, uh, the, the overall, in this case, a basketball team won't succeed. And that reminded me when I was thinking of Dean, was a book that I actually need to revisit now. Uh, John Wooden, the legendary UCLA Absolutely. coach. Um, one of his books, I think it was the On Leadership book, 
when he has the pyramid of success about it, and this is a pyramid of success that anyone can use throughout their life, whether they're in the ministry or a nonprofit work or a private sector. And there's a there's a key piece of advice in there that I have maybe I've just um, absorbed it and now I believe it because I hadn't I don't talk about it as much, but I think it is part of the reason that, that caring has been successful. Is he says that good values attract good people. Like that's at the core of what led you know John Wooden to be truly the the greatest coach in the history of college basketball and his family tree goes on and people looked at him for for leadership lessons even you know long after his passing is that he talks about values and that having those core values of how you operate and how you you build a business or you build a basketball team that when you have those core values and in the right place and you're able to articulate them people will come to you and funding will come to you and growth will come to you and success will come to you so um, that's one I, I, I revisited as I was thinking about this podcast that I've read a couple times uh, really in the last 10 or 15 years, not in the last couple of years. But I, after having done this podcast, I'm going to go back and, and look at it again. <laughs> well, Don, you've inspired many people to add to their reading list and, and mine included. Yeah, you've given me some great ones to add to the library. And uh, I, I'm grateful for your time and conversation. Uh, keep up the good work. Your example certainly is a good one in this Charlotte community, but I think to communities all over who are trying to do good work through their nonprofits. So thank you again for joining me on the path. You're very kind, Pat, and I appreciate it. And I wish you all success. You're a, a real treasure to have you and your leadership in this space. Thanks, Don. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Well, as a basketball fan, I must confess I've enjoyed Don's professional development book resources that allow me to go down memory lane of college basketball's history. But as you just heard, there's much more than basketball to this great conversation with Don. And I hope you'll review the show notes to access the resources and links and so forth that you can apply right now to your journey on the path to nonprofit leadership. As always, I hope you'll share this episode with someone else who's on the nonprofit path. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe so we can continue to build this community. Keep up the good work you're doing for whatever nonprofit cause is meaningful to you. And I look forward to seeing you next time on the path.